Hi, friends, it's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Last week, we saw the passing of a legend in baseball, the Hall of Famer pitcher Phil Negro. Spent most of his career with the Atlanta Braves. But the reason I mentioned his name, the reason he touched me so much, was because he pitched till he was like 48 years old. He had an unbelievable long career, and it was due to the fact that he could throw a baseball with very little trauma. As an orthopedic surgeon, I appreciated that to his elbow, to his shoulder. Because he threw a pitch that put very little stress on his arm. He threw a pitch called a knuckleball. What is a knuckleball? Well, two of your fingers, your index and your long finger, you literally take your fingernail and dig it into the baseball. It makes the ball fly. It's only 70 miles an hour. It's not a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. But it makes the ball fly in a pathway that the pitcher has no idea where it's going to go. The catcher or the hitter has no idea where it's going to go. And Phil Negro was the best at throwing this pitch. Immediately, I called Stan Conti and said, I want to talk about how this pitch, the knuckleball, works and why it's so gentle to the elbow and the shoulder. And at 8.15, he'll be calling in. I know Stan Conti from his days as the L.A. Dodger trainer. He's an expert in the field of keeping pitchers safe. And I can't wait to have him describe to us why it is that this knuckleball is so gentle. The reality is, is every pitcher should learn how to do it, but they don't. With Phil Necro's passing, there's nobody currently in the major leagues who even throws the pitch. It's crazy. But the reason is because it's hard. It's hard to control the uncontrollable. How do you control that chaos? Well, you know I love the world of art, the world of sports, and the world of surgery. Where do you see the knuckleball? in this erratic flight in art and in surgery. For me, what if you're a songwriter and you use words that make no sense? You do a melody that stops and speeds up and goes sideways. That's a knuckleball in art. The song Stairway to Heaven does that. Starts off slow is then influenced by the different musicians. And then the singer, Robert Plant, writes the lyrics, which don't make any sense. He just likes the way they sound. There's no meaning to that song. But it starts from the knuckleball picture, the guy who wrote the melody, Jimmy Page. And when you hear Jimmy Page describe the song Stairway to Heaven and how he composed it, for me, it's as if the baseball that Phil Necro just threw could talk. I'm going to go high. I'm going to go low. I'm going to go left. I'm going to go right. I'm going to be influenced by the wind, by the spin. It's exactly what this song is. You want to hear what a knuckleball pitch sounds like? Listen to Stairway to Heaven. Let's listen to the song, and then let's listen to Jimmy Page describe controlling the uncontrollable stairway to heaven. Number one. Starting off slow, it's only 70 miles an hour. It's not a 100 mile an hour fastball or curveball like Clayton Kershaw throws or 
Sandy Koufax threw a curveball. No. To put something together. Next. Which started with uh, a quite a fragile, exposed acoustic guitar playing in sort of style of uh, a poor man's bourree by Bach. That sort of aspect. As far as the instrumentation goes, there are going to be a, 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 this recorders to the early part, which gives it a sort of slightly medieval feel. Just like the knuckleball, the song starts off slow, only 70 miles an hour. Acoustic guitar, the pace of this song, slow. But now that slow pitch is about to get influenced by spin and by wind. Number three. There's a lady who showed all the glitters is gold, and she's buying the stairway to heaven. That was an idea of John Paul Jones is to put the recorders on, um, and he played the recorders. When I actually had the idea for stairway, I wasn't that wasn't necessary. I wasn't thinking recorders. I was thinking more the texture of actually the electric piano. So here's the bass player, John Paul Jones, telling Jimmy Page, no, not electric piano, use a recorder. That's mid-flight, the knuckleball being pushed a little bit, influenced a little bit by the wind between the pitcher's mound and home plate. Here it's about to be influenced again, but this time by Robert Plant, who needs to write lyrics to this melody that Jimmy Page has come up with. Next. The idea of Stairway was to have uh, a, a, a piece of music, a composition, whereby it would just keep unfolding into more, uh, more layers and more moods. And actually the whole intensity of the, or subtlety and the intensity the, 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 of the overlay of the composition would actually uh, accelerate as it went through on every level, every emotional level, every musical level, and so it just keeps opening up as it's as it as it continues through its sort of passage. Journey, accelerate, movement. That's a knuckleball. Listen to how the lyrics came about, because the songwriter, the pitcher, Jimmy Page, he's open to being influenced, to helping other people help on the path of the pitch, leaving the pitcher's hand, his hand, in writing a song to ultimately getting into the catcher's mitt, into your ear. Your ear is the catcher's mitt. Number five. Robert was magnificent with his input of lyrics to the music of Led Zeppelin anyway. This was during the period that we were at Headley Grange that uh, the, the, the thing was put together. It was slightly complicated to be doing this whole thing without a vocal, because at the time there weren't any lyrics and this, is the, this was the backbone of what the song was, going, was intended to be. And the, the whole of the running order from the beginning to the end was sort of mapped out. It was tricky, it was a tricky thing to do because the, the, there's a lot of music and changes in it. Sculpting is not tricky for Michelangelo because he already sees the figure trapped in the rock. Robert Plant, the songwriter, the lyricist for this song, it ain't tricky for him because he sat down in front of Jimmy Page and immediately wrote the lyrics. They don't make any sense, but that doesn't matter. He's buying into the pathway of this pitch that's gonna go in crazy directions with the perfect words for this melody. Number six. I remember during that period, Robert was, he was sort of sitting down, leaning against the wall and he was just sort of writing. I, I, I won't never forget that image of him doing that. We do a run through of it from beginning to end with the uh, uh, guitar opening, as we all know. And then Robert comes up and starts to, he starts to pitch in and sing. And I tell you, he had said, must have been 90% of the lyrics were, were already done. Mm. 
number seven. And so everything is starting to open up on this map, on this journey through. And all of this stuff was planned, you know, it wasn't just an accident or everyone chipping in. It was just, it, it, it really was a, a sort of design. And finally, number eight, he's violating the rule. Don't speed up the song. It's exactly the knuckleball. Nobody else throws it. They're all told, don't throw that pitch. You need to throw it faster and ruin your elbow and your shoulder. No one's encouraging anyone to throw a knuckleball. No one's encouraging Jimmy Page to speed up the song. He's a talented studio musician. They're telling him never do that. What does he do? He throws the knuckleball. Number eight. One of the cardinal rules when I was a studio musician was that you didn't speed up. And I was keen to do something which had an acceleration to it, not only from the musical point of view, but from the lyricist, so that the whole thing would start to gain a momentum as it went through. So it wasn't just a monotone piece. And by that, I actually mean that it would, that, that it would subtly speed up. So you're breaking the number one cardinal rule. Now we're going to hear Phil Negro talk about why he would throw this crazy pitch, why he would violate that rule, throw fastballs, curveballs, don't throw the knuckleball. But not Phil Negro, not Jimmy Page. They're the same, sports and art. Let's listen to the story of the knuckleball. We heard Jimmy Page. Let's hear Phil Negro, number one. No one ever told me that I can't throw a knuckleball when I was 10 or 11 years old. So I just, after year after year, playing catch with my dad in the backyard, and it was the pitch that I could get guys out when we choosed up sides, and it was the pitch that got me on the varsity team when I was a freshman. That was the pitch that I could throw when I was growing up, and no one said that you couldn't do it. Now let's go to number three, where you hear the catcher, Ron Hassey, say, I don't even have any idea where this ball's going to end up. He doesn't know where it's going to end up as the pitcher. The hitter doesn't know. And I'm burdened with the task of trying to catch the damn thing. Fascinating. Number three. Sympathize with these guys at all? Not a bit. <laughs> no. I used to when I first got into organized baseball. I kept saying, boy, I can't throw this because that guy's going to miss it. You can't get any type of rhythm to where maybe it's breaking away every time because just when you start thinking about that, it'll end up breaking the opposite way or it doesn't break and it goes up. It's just uh, every time you go out there, something different. I can't say I'm going to make this knuckleball pop in the outside corner down the inside corner. Because uh, it's just that pitch that never does the same thing twice. And number, number four next. I'll tell you, you know, I've been asked that question lots of times. You know, why does a knuckleball do what it does and what makes it do? And I have no idea. It is a type of pitch that comes out of the fingers without any spin to it. The good knuckleball is the ball that just kind of comes in like this all the way in the batter and just does a few things on the way in. I really started throwing a knuckleball when I was in grade school. Number five. My father was a sandlot pitcher. Yeah, threw a knuckleball. He threw me a knuckleball, and I, I missed it, or I, he laughed at it or something, and I said, what was that? And he showed me and said, son, that's a knuckleball. Here's how you hold it. I place it back in here very comfortably. I wrap these two fingers, my thumb around the ball, and these two fingers actually just come up and dig when I throw it. The pitcher doesn't know where it's going, nor does the catcher know where it's going. Bruce Benedict is having a lot of trouble with Necro's knuckleball right now. So if you can't catch it, you must realize it must be tough to hit. It's unhittable. You swing, and you could miss that ball by five or six inches, and I've seen guys do that. I love this. Bob Boone, a great hitter, telling him he wishes he had a tennis racket because that's how far this ball flies in crazy directions because it has very little spin. It has some spin, but it accepts the wind in the stadium. It's influence. Just like Jimmy Page wrote that music, Influence by John Paul Jones to use a recorder by Robert Plant and his lyrics. This ball is influence 
to go wherever it wants to go. Number six. He threw me a corkscrew knuckleball one day that went like this, that I still wake up in the middle of the night seeing. I went oh for the next two years against him. There was times when... I needed a tennis racket to hit him. A baddie would swing and look at me and laugh. <laughs> I'd turn my back and just kind of put my glove over my face. He was phenomenal. Next. For a career defined by deception, it's most fitting that Phil Necro was born on April Fool's Day, 1939. He enjoyed early success at Ohio's Bridgeport High School. Made the varsity team as a freshman throwing knuckleballs. That was it. Lost one game in high school. Bill Mazeroski, the home run off of me in high school. Beginning his major league career as an average reliever with the Braves in 1964, Negro's improvement coincided with some sage advice from his witty 1967 battery mate. And finally, let's hear what Bob Euchre, his catcher, told him. You throw it, don't worry, I'll catch it, because no one else can hit this ball. Go. The guy that really turned my career around as far as a catcher was Bob Euchre. Euchre said, if you throw more knuckleballs than you have been, you're going to win the big leagues. Because I was getting taken out of games of runners on third base and stealing and pass balls. So don't worry about that. I'll catch it. If I don't, uh, that's my problem. That year that he caught me, I led the league in earner on average. He led the league in pass balls at the same time. <laughs> Actually, let's finally go to the last bite. I continued to do that until Jeff Burroughs came up. I was pitching a shutout, and all of a sudden it hit me. My father taught that knuckleball to me in the backyard in Ohio. I can't think of a better way to win my 300th game than by striking Burroughs out if I can't win a knuckleball. That's it! Holy cow, what a way to end it! A strikeout gets his 300th career win, and I tell you, this is really an exciting moment. The brothers hugging, and that is really an emotional moment. Let's learn. That was the great Phil Rizzuto. Man, I hear his voice and him say, holy cow. It makes me say, holy cow. But we'll have another holy cow when we talk to the great Stan Conti, the science behind the knuckleball. Why don't other players adopt it? It's a fascinating story about controlling the uncontrollable in art, in sports, in surgery. We'll learn more, more about it coming up next on the Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Miss an interview or Doc's weekly story? Check it out on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Also, Doc's advice to callers on their aches and pains. Just type Weekend Warrior in the Facebook search bar, and you'll see Doc's picture in the listings. And thanks for checking out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Hey, it's John Ireland. You know there is no better way to start your Saturday than with the man who replaced Michael Thompson's hip. Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Google the Guggenheim. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to talk to my guest, the great Stan Conti. Stan, thanks so much for waking up early to be with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being there. What do you think about the crazy idea of comparing Phil Necro's knuckleball pitch to Jimmy Page riding Stairway to Heaven? (laughs) I thought that was a good quote. I also wanted to add one more Euchre quote uh, when you you were mentioning that he – you know, he, the more they threw it, the more he caught it. I think the, the real quote was, the way to catch a knuckleball is to wait till it stops rolling and then pick it up. So <laughs> I think that, that might be a more appropriate quote. In the operating room, we, we always say, all bleeding eventually stops, but the patient may not still be alive, but it eventually yeah. stops. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes. But yeah. before we get into it, I, I want to, if I'm going to actually make Jimmy Page like Phil Necro, controlling the uncontrollable. Is it something that you see in pitchers? Your world is is in injury and in rehab and in training Major League Baseball players. The connection between their technique 
and ultimately leading to injury. Sometimes, and I remember being with Dr. Job during my fellowship in 1988, where you had Oral Hershiser and Fernando Valenzuela, both of them tore their labrum in their shoulder. One had right. surgery, the other didn't. And Fernando ended up throwing a no-hitter and saying no to surgery on his labrum. Obviously, what happened to Oral and his great success afterwards after surgery is legendary. But yeah. talk to me about pretty much pitchers who don't necessarily follow the rules. Oh, well, um, you know, when you talk about uh, control more than anything else, it, it really has to be with consistency of pitching, reproducibility more than anything else. Um, and uh, when you look at control, it kind of gets you in what we look at from an injury standpoint uh, is performance metrics. And, uh, you know, if all of a sudden the guy cannot get the strike zone, his, his walks per nine go up, that may be an indicator of different things. So, you know, you talk about what you can control, um, you know, after the ball leaves your hand, you have no control. So the, the, the whole mechanics of that, the spin on the ball, uh, where the release points are, have to be consist- consistent. And probably the, the most – the guy who had that more than anything else was Greg Maddox, just really mm-hmm. consistent delivery. And he, he pitched a lot of years without having an injury. So mm-hmm. injuries are definitely related uh, to how they throw the ball, what type of pitches they're throwing. And mm-hmm. so when you really get into the knuckleball – you see that these knuckleball pitchers over the decades and really the centuries uh, have been able to throw a lot of pitches without an injury. Uh, and that's because that one, the knuckleball doesn't have spin on it. That's the whole point of it. But also they don't uh, throw the ball hard. It's usually between 60 and 70 miles per hour. So injuries are all about in, too much stress on different parts, whether it's your ulnar ligament or it's on your shoulder and the labrum. Um, th- those forces, as they increase, obviously the tissues can only take so much from a physiological standpoint. So, so when you look at the knuckleballer, he doesn't actually take his arm back that far, which is that layback position. Um, and you go, because he's not throwing that hard, he doesn't reach back as far. And that particular part of the uh, pitching mechanics is called um, – uh, late cocking, early acceleration, and that's what puts the most stress on the ulnar flyer ligament, and that's where that usually tears. These guys aren't throwing that hard. They're not putting that much pressure on their ligament, and they're sort of pushing the ball as opposed to getting right out so they don't have the spin. They decrease stresses. So you see these unbelievable numbers like a Necro, you know, not, not just his wins, but he, he threw over 5,000 pitches in his career ranking him like third or fourth on the all-time list. Um, and he pitched in over 800 games. Uh, so he was able to do that because the stress was less. Hmm. You know, our mutual friend, good friend, Neil Elitrosh, I remember having a, a long conversation with him about looking inside the professional baseball player, and it could be for college or high school as well, when you're inside with your arthroscope looking at the joint of the fastball pitcher who's throwing 100 miles an hour, which is completely abnormal for a human being to be able to do that with their arm and their shoulder. And I remember Neil telling me, Robbie, you got to be careful because what you're going to see in there is all abnormal because by definition, you need a shoulder to be abnormal to be able to throw 100 miles an hour because that's not normal. So you may not want to fix everything you see, the laxity in the capsule and all the rest of it that you may encounter. You better not tighten it up like you would do in a weekend warrior, because if you do, you can't throw 100 miles an hour anymore. So learning what's really the pathology causing the pain versus fixing everything that, li- that is abnormal. For in your world, Stan, mm-hmm. did you ever modify your rehab where you wouldn't necessarily rehab a weekend warrior and their elbow and their shoulder the same way you would a warrior, which is a professional mm. baseball pitcher. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally different. Uh, it's not even apples and oranges. It's apples and uh, a, a chair. It's totally different uh, mm. in regards to how you approach these things. And, um, you know, and when you're rehabbing these things, you have to understand, I think you make a really great point on, 
the slap tear, which is a tear of the layer bump. Um, what we found over the years, and, and uh, Dr. Elishrash obviously knows this, is that there is some normal tearing of the top part of the labrum um, because your arm needs to go farther back, and it adopts, adapts over time. So you, you have to, you, and early on, 20 years ago, when they started doing label surgeries, they would see this and they would tighten it up because it was not attached but it was supposed to be not attached to the pitcher. So, but on the rehab side, um, the throwing program, the return to throwing is the hardest part of that uh, because of the tensile strength that you have to uh, be uh, aware of, especially after a surgery. So you don't want it like Tommy John surgery is probably the, you know, the most known and, and talked about. Uh, if, you move, if you start throwing too hard, you put more stress in that ligament while it's still healing. It takes a whole year to heal, basically, and, and remodel. So if you go out there and just start throwing really hard, and uh, at the beginning, he'll have a setback or end up having a second Tommy John, which we see, we're seeing more frequently. Hmm. Uh, Steve Paulette, let's play the soundbite number two of Phil Necro literally describing how he uses his thumb his ring finger to cradle the, the widest portion of the baseball, uses his pinky little finger to kind of cradle the undersurface of the ball, but literally sticks his fingernails into the baseball. I want, I want to ask you about this, Stan. Let's play number two. So, how do you throw the knuckleball? I throw that ball right there. Uh, I'll take this thumb and this finger here and wrap the ball balance around the ball as much as I can in here. It's, it's not ones up here or down there. They pretty much balance across. I'll take this finger and just kind of, wherever it feels good laying it there, I'll lay it there. I'll take these two fingers, drop them over the ball, and bring these two fingers back as far as I can, and dig the fingernails into the ball. We talk, Stan, a lot about the kinetic chain. You know, people with a bad elbow we need to look at their shoulder in terms of a baseball mechanics. How about looking at their fingernails as the kinetic mm -hmm. chain of it leaving? Talk to us about how shoulder injuries relate to the elbow, elbow injuries relate to the shoulder, and how the fingernail, believe it or not, is part of this kinetic chain. Well, um, uh, the, the whole idea of this is to, to – the kinetic chain really starts at your foot. Hit, uh, pressing down on the ground, the ground pushes back up you and sends a, um, energy, kinetic energy, up through your legs and your, your pelvis into your shoulder blade, into your shoulder, into your elbow, and then the, the forces go on the ball. Obviously, more forces on the ball, more, more velocity. So the shoulder and elbow are, are related. Now, shoulder injuries um, uh, are more common than elbow injuries in, in professional baseball. Um, but uh, the, the Tommy John surgery gets a lot of, a lot of uh, 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 talk about what they're doing. It, one of the things that we saw as we started to look at Tommy John surgeries 30 years ago is that uh, we were starting to see more of them and little decrease in the number of shoulder injuries in professional baseball. And uh, we did a study one time that looked, looked at uh, going all the way back to 1998. And about in 2006, well, at the beginning, shoulder injuries were the highest and, and uh, elbows were about a third of it. As it went up, the elbows went up, but the shoulders went down. And we, we attribute that to change of forces coming onto the elbow. And Frank Job, uh, who obviously is the, the legend of, uh, of doctors in baseball, he really established early in the 2000s a, a rotator cuff program, a strengthening rotator cuff program that wasn't there before. And we theorized that because so many baseball players were working on their shoulder and their rotator cuff, that that, that kinetic energy was able to be transmitted cleanly through the shoulder, but then the elbow uh, – uh, took more force and therefore the ligaments went on. There's one thing you can't do with an ulnar flare ligament. You can't strengthen it. You can't, you can strengthen some of the muscles around it, but you can't strengthen the ligament. And I think when you start talking about guys who are throwing hundred miles an hour, they, they exceed the physiological limits of that ligament and there's no way to get it stronger. So, um, you know, uh, we say from a physics standpoint, 
you know, every throw is a potential tear of the ulnar lateral ligament. And, and that kinetic chain has a lot to do with it, but mechanics do too. If your mechanics is off, let's say, to, due to fatigue, so you're getting tired in the game, but you still want to throw 98 miles an hour, you start using different muscles in different ways, your, your mechanics drop down, and that actually increases the stress on the ligament and on the hmm. shoulder. We're talking to the great Stan Conti, the most knowledgeable person I know about mechanics in the baseball pitcher. I had Rick Barry, the Hall of Fame basketball player, on this show mm -hmm. uh, a few years back, and it was uh, really interesting to talk to him about the frustration he had watching Shaquille O'Neal try to shoot free throws, how bad he was at it, and he would beg and plead. I can guarantee if he shot free throws the way I do, underhand he would be better than 50 percent for sure and you'd hear Shaq say there's no way i'm being caught dead doing that because it looks like a granny type of free throw the appearance of it even though his numbers would have gone up all of us in the in the stands at the staples center screen bend your knees Shaq. i mean it was like ridiculous but he was not going to do it and many of the poor free throw shooters in the nba None of them are going to adopt it, even though it's better. Can you explain, is it for that reason that when Phil Necro is passed, and may he rest in peace, we're not seeing other pitchers adopt this for longevity and all the beautiful reasons you've outlined? What is it that makes a professional baseball player reluctant to throw the knuckleball? Well, I think part of it is it's a really difficult pitch to throw. And uh, when you when you uh, talk to these knuckleball guys, there's not very many mentors out there to teach them how to do that. Um, and so what happens on a knuckleball is you really don't want any spin on that. Uh, and when they talk about putting their fingernails into the ball, that's part of it. But what they don't do is ever push off the laces because that will cause the, the uh, uh, ball to spin, and then it won't have the same aerodynamics. Uh, that it has when it's hardly spinning at all. You know, in baseball, the big thing right now is spin rates. Spin rates uh, are how many times the ball uh, completes a circle from the time it uh, gets to the time it gets to the plate. And those are typically 2,800, 26, uh, I'm sorry, 2,600 uh, 2, uh, uh, revolutions per minute. The knuckleball is 100, okay, hmm. instead of... 2600. So that I think the the big reason that people don't go to the knuckleball and what you see a lot of people do is at the end of their career, uh, Tim Wakefield did this. In the beginning, he was he was a pitcher and he's doing pretty good. He got to the big leagues and he wasn't very good. And then he he decided he needed a pitch and he went to the knuckleball. He learned the knuckleball. And then he was able to go another 15 years using the knuckleball. So I think the problem is is not so much that they don't want to to, to switch, uh, but they can't, they don't know how to throw it more than anything else. And the other problem, like with the foul shooting, uh, and I don't, I hate to use this word because it, it, it makes me nervous just to say it. There's the yips <laughs> and the yips are mm. golfers, get them baseball uh, catchers, get them, you know, and, and free throw shooters get them too. It's a whole psychological mess. So, hmm. you know, the legendary golfer, Ben Hogan, before his uh, tournaments, would stay in the hotel, fill the bathtub up with water, and take all of his golf balls that he was going to use in the tournament into the bathtub with him. And he used this in the 50s and 40s. And he used to spin the golf balls in the bathtub and try to figure out, even though they all on the outside looked the same as golf balls, the way the weaving was of the inside of the ball made them rotate and you have to find the true way the ball would rotate. And he then would take out an ink pen and draw a line of where that center of spinning was for the ball. So when he went to putt, he put the ball onto the green with that line towards the cup. And the ball would now roll where its natural tendency was to be true. Mm -hmm. Do you believe a baseball with the, the stitches mm -hmm. influences the ultimate way the ball spins? And could that ultimately be something that a baseball pitcher would put less stress on their arm if they knew that? Uh, Major League Baseball um, goes through a lot of stuff in regards to having all the balls the same. 
Um, that said, uh, there's many times when you see an umpire throw a, a, pit, a ball out to the pitcher and he immediately throws it back because it doesn't feel right, uh, mm-hmm. which means it's a, probably defective. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, whether it's wow. a little too heavy or a little too whatever or it's something, but it's, it's amazing uh, the feel that the pitcher has just like the golfer does uh, mm-hmm. where – they can feel the difference that that ball is not what they want, and they throw that back and get another one. They can't keep doing that, however, and they can't select their balls ahead of time. So it, it, it makes it difficult in regards to that. But you do see different baseballs between the minor leagues and the major leagues. And, and a lot of times in the minor leagues, the laces are more uh, uh, raised. And uh, pitchers like that because, again, uh, you get spin by pushing on the laces and rotating the ball. If you have a better, a higher lace, um, then that gets it going a little bit more. And you know that all baseballs aren't the same because some years there's like seven zillion home runs and other years <laughs> not. I'm not saying anything, but he loads the balls or anything. There seems to be something with that. You know, so uh, – uh, so anyway, I, I think in baseball, um, the ball does have a lot of influence on that. And um, you will see sometimes uh, a pitcher, um, uh, he can't put anything on the ball. Let me say, he shouldn't put anything on the ball. Um, hmm. But sometimes you'll see them with their nail, their thumbnail, and they'll run their nail around the laces in order to get a little bit more depth in the laces. Uh, so, um, uh, that, that again, gives them that feel that they can get a little bit more, uh, spin on the ball and the, and the spin on the ball really has a lot to do with velocity, but also has to do with how the ball breaks. So more spin, a curveball has about 3000, um, um, revolutions per sec per minute, um, when they throw a curveball. So if you can get more spin on the ball, it'll break more and make break more consistently. Uh, so that all kind of goes into that. And then, but then you go again back to the knuckleballer, and he doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want laces. He doesn't want anything. And he wants that ball to float. And, and the physics of that are interesting. There's a lot of physics uh, studies out there that talks about zigzag theory, which is a theory of where airflow is and, there, and, and how the mm-hmm. ball drops when the air changes and where the airflow goes over that. And if you spin the ball, uh, it won't have that, what they call a zigzag phenomenon. Mm. And, uh, and depending, as you were saying in your intro, was the, the, the air in the stadium is that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, so th- it, that's the reason a lot of times they don't know where the ball is going um, because the wind factors change or it's a windy day, or it's not a windy day, that type of thing. So all of those things influence us. That's what makes it so difficult to control that ball. Stan Conti, it's just always a pleasure to hear you speak. You can tell the passion. You've certainly chosen the one thing in life that you really love the most, and you can do it for the rest of your life. What do they say? Find a job you love to do, and it's not work. Uh, That's what you can tell when you talk about baseball. The contributions you've made, that we all read what you write, I can't thank you enough. And thanks so much for getting up early this morning to be with us. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, and a great, great show you got going. And <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan Conti. What a pleasure. All right, all right Warriors, all right. coming up next, I'll take your calls. The clinic will be open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. That's 877-710-3776. Why will Aaron Donald be able to play today? I'm going to tell you why. What does a rib injury like his mean? And how come he will be able to play? We'll get into it, and I'll take your calls. Coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook Know Your Your Knee Post. One of the most complicated areas of the body, ACL, PCL, 
MCL. Patella supplication. Really? Dr. Clapper translates the language of your need on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Cool. Simply type in Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Wow. wow! Your knee feels better already. Damn right. Like, follow, and feel better Hello there. with the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Hey, Robbie, do you like donuts? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I love donuts. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. I don't want to interrupt this song. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Times. Miles Rogers. Mm-mm-mm. Chic. This is one of my Desert Island songs. I may dance so much on that island, a coconut may fall down and bop me in the head. But I won't care, because I'm listening to this song. Numbers 877-710-ESPN. The rib injury that Aaron Donald had. If you ever get a chance, look at the pictures when he takes his shirt off. He reminds me of the Greek marble sculptures that I like to copy when I sculpt. Aaron Donald is an Adonis. He is a Greek sculpture. Chiseled, literally, in marble. But believe it or not, even he can get hurt. Because living right underneath our skin, and you can feel it in your own body, is the rib. There's not a lot of meat between the skin and the rib bone in your body and in Aaron Donald's body as well. And what's fascinating about the rib is it's got cartilage caps. The clapper vision is it is a pencil where the bone is the yellow part, but the metal and the eraser is made of cartilage, made of a rubbery structure. And it's literally connected, the cartilage, onto the pencil, onto the bone by that same junction. Go take an x-ray. Patients are in such pain with a rib bruise or injury, the x-rays are negative. They don't have a fracture like Drew Brees with 11 rib fractures that you can see on the x-ray. But they're in as much pain because what doesn't show up on the x-ray is the cartilage cap in the front, in the back of the rib. But here's the best part about it, which is why you can get out there because medicine allows us to feel the rib, the surgeon's fingers. I can feel the skin, I can feel the rib, and you can take that numbing medicine because he's got to play. If Aaron Donald ain't playing today, we ain't beating the Green Bay Packers and you bounce the tip of the needle onto, through the skin, you you numb the skin, you can bounce it off the bone. There's no artery, there's nothing. You can feel it right there on the bone, but the anatomy, knowing your anatomy is key because we know that the intercostal nerve that feeds the serratus anterior, that feeds the muscles that are very thin around the rib cage itself, the nerve is on the inferior, the lower border of the rib, not on the superior side. So you feel for the lower portion of the rib, and that's where you put the numbing medicine. You make that nerve numb, you can have a contusion, a bruise, even a fracture, and you can go and play. Yes, you put pads, extra pads on, Uh, But you're not going to feel anything because for the duration of the game, that rib bruise will be numb. So I do not have any fears that uh, Aaron Donald will not be uh, playing today. Um, Plus, he's so big and strong, he may not even take any treatment and just get out there. Without him, there's no Jared Goff. You need that defense of ours to calm down Aaron Rodgers. Otherwise, we ain't winning the game. But you know what? I have faith in Sean McVay. I have faith in Jared Goff. 
I think we're going to beat the Packers today in Green Bay. And I've had a bucket list, which I made happen a few years ago. I said to my wife, I want to go to a football game in Green Bay, Wisconsin in the wintertime and see what it's like to be in the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. So we did. We flew there. And this was one of the great embarrassing moments of my life because I said to my friend who got a beautiful suite, we didn't have to be in the freezing cold, even though I wish we did. Uh, on the 50-yard line, I'm sitting with this good buddy of mine and my wife who said to me, it's freezing in here. I said, Ellen, this is the suite. We're indoors. Forget about the people that are out there, like 20 below zero. But I said to my friend, as we're watching Green Bay Packers, their uniforms are green and yellow, play the Detroit Lions, and their uniforms are blue. I said to my friend, I don't get it. Why is half the stadium filled with orange colors, jackets of the Chicago Bears? The Detroit Lions are playing the Green Bay Packers. Why is half the stadium wearing orange clothes like the Chicago Bear colors? And my friend starts laughing. He says, Robbie, those are their hunting jackets. <laughs> they're not wearing Green Bay or Detroit Lion colors because they're freezing. They're wearing their hunting jackets, and those are orange. You know, anyway. Once again, pointing out that the Jewish guy from New York should not be going to Green Bay, Wisconsin. But it was hilarious. But today, it's going to be freezing up there because it is freezing even when you're in the indoor suite like I was. But there's no place like it. You know why? Because you know who owns the Green Bay Packers? You know why you'll never have to worry about them leaving that little town of Green Bay and going to a big city? Because the people of Green Bay, Wisconsin, own the Green Bay Packers. There's no single owner who can uproot the team in the middle of the night and move to some city because they build them a stadium. That ain't going to happen, ever, because the town owns the team. The only situation like that in all of professional sports, and it'll never happen again, but it's a beautiful thing. So good luck today, Rams. I have confidence in you. Coming up next, last segment, I'm going to tell you where the best French bread, baguette, eclair, and ham sandwich like going to Paris. As, as if I took you to LAX and with your passport, we flew to Paris. It exists here in LA. My mouth is watering already. I cannot wait to have this sandwich this afternoon myself. If you go there, you may even see me ordering a sandwich there today. I'll tell you where that is coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. It's good to be king, right, King James? Absolutely. And good to be courtly friends on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. I love it. Be treated like medical royalty with Clapper Vision. Feast like a monarch on Doc's delectable finds. There we go. And that far rockaway jester humor. <laughs> Search Weekend Warrior and click on Doc's regal picture. Cool. <laughs> Sound the trumpets. No cortisone, alchemy, or leeches here. Everything's good. Bow, curtsy, like or follow the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. That makes me happy. Cheers. You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show, presented by Cedar Sinai. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. All right. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I have a Beatles wig on. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. It's another island song for me. Game of Love, Michelle Branch and Carlos Santana. I don't want to interrupt this song. Great, now all the lines are lit up. Too late. <laughs> this is the last segment. You guys will have to call back next week. Ken, Juan, Steve, I'll get to you next week on the show. No time for calls today. I apologize. Where is this French heaven that exists in Los Angeles? It's called Sweet Lily Bakery. Sweet Lily Bakery in Hollywood. Treat yourself. 
This is what I would get. I know they sell salads. Fine. That's for another time. That's for another place. It's called a jambon sandwich. J-A-M-B-O-N. That's how you say ham in French. On their baguette. I can't even speak. My mouth is so watering. You will have the greatest butter. French butter. Slice of ham. Vinegar gherkins. With the crunch of that baguette. The chocolate eggclair, make sure you get one of those as well. I'm not saying it's cheap, but if you want something good, you got to pay for it. That was the greatest French experience you can have in Los Angeles. It's literally like going to Paris. Sweet Lily Bakery in Hollywood. Next week, I cannot wait. There's a Los Angeles institution for pizza. Well, here's what's interesting. I'm kind of a snob for New York pizza, but this ain't New York pizza. This is Los Angeles' very own pizza. And it's also from the 1940s, been here forever. They're not trying to be New York pizza. They bake it in a pan, can you imagine? And I'm telling you, this is a great place to go. I should, I'm gonna be arrested by all my friends from New York for even saying this, but we're having the owner Baroni's Pizza from the Valley calling in next week because they do something so unique, so Los Angeles. They're not trying to be anybody else. So it doesn't taste like New York pizza. But on some level, it's better. And it made me think already. What are institutions in art, in sports, and in surgery that came to L.A. and got better? Well, the Dodgers and the Johnny Carson Show. We'll get into that next week. Until then, I'll see you on the radio. Leave you with Bolaro. What are you getting at? Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Like this. Medical advice from Cedar sinai head of orthopedic surgery. Are you kidding? With a far rockaway attitude and a little drizzle of mozzarella. Well, it's important to me. Search Weekend Warrior in the space bar. Like this. And click on Doc's picture. I see. Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page.